0: Prologue. Coming out is more than a single act of disclosure. It is an always awkward, sometimes painful, iterative journey. I have come out again and again throughout my life. I first came out to myself, and even that happened a couple of times as I figured it all out. Then I came out to others. I've been deciding almost daily to come out in any number of situations ever since. I've told sterilized, suitable for work versions of my coming out story for twenty years, but I've never told my true story. From the beginning. My journey began when I was far too young. It was painful and difficult, and I paid many prices along the way as I found my true self. And I can say, thirty four years after I fully came out in all aspects of my life, it wasn't always easy, but I'm so proud of the person I am and the work I did to get here. There are some things I wish had never happened, but I wouldn't be the man I am if they hadn't, and I love the person I became. As people listen to these four episodes, I believe reactions will fall generally into three categories. 1. Listeners will fully lean in and be grateful for hearing such a complete, real world, honest account of my experience and recognize others may benefit from hearing it as well. 2. Listeners will be angry and feel what I shared was wholly inappropriate and entirely too much. 3. Listeners will be avoidant, uncomfortable, look away from the realities of my journey and stop listening. Truth is not always comfortable. There are parents and children and families who need to know they are not alone. Social media has allowed people to take elaborate steps to paint a picture of their perfect, best lives. But no one's life is perfect. So here's to imperfection, and the growth and change it can bring, once acknowledged and embraced. In case you missed it, this episode is marked Explicit. There is no humorous story about saving a feral kitten. This is a story of finding
1: and saving myself. If you're listening with young ears nearby, this is your chance to hit pause and come back later.
0: If you don't want my opinion, Episode 5, Questions and Answers, by Carl Marking. As summer break approached the year I was in fifth grade, Many of my classmates seemed to have begun developing crushes on one another. I had apparently developed a crush, too. Why are you always looking at Mr. I? One of my friends asked me in math class. What do you mean? You're always watching him. Was I? I turned and looked at our teacher. He was in his late 20s or early 30s. He had a dark complexion, a lean, well-muscled body, a thick head of black wavy hair, full lips, a cleft chin, and a full mustache. He always dressed in form-fitting polyester from head to toe and had the hairiest forearms I'd ever seen on a man. It's weird, my friend whispered harshly. Stop being a fag. I was 11. At that age and during that time, if a peer called you a fag, it didn't always carry the derogatory sexual undertone used today to belittle someone who is actually gay. Many of us didn't fully understand what the word meant and often hurled it as a general insult, like spaz or dork. We knew it was a harsher insult than most, and we heard it on TV, where it most likely was meant in the derogatory and specifically about someone's sexuality, but many of us were still putting all of that subtext together. Typically, when we called someone a fag at that age, we just meant the person was behaving oddly in some way. I had heard the word faggot many times from my father. He kept a single prop airplane at our local airfield and used to use the word in reference to Jeff, a flamboyant man who worked there. His delivery of the word carried a dark undertone I didn't understand. Jeff was effeminate, but consistently kind to me, so I never thought much about it. I'd also heard my mother use the word. She'd come from the bank and say something negative about that faggoty bank teller, Michael. He was also flamboyant, effeminate, and kind. He was a senior at our high school. I never understood why my mother so relentlessly tore him down. When I got home from school, I took out our well-worn dictionary with its white pleather cover, dropped it on the orange living room wall-to-wall carpet, and lay down on my belly. The dictionary was unabridged, which made it perfect for pressing flowers, and the one I'd put in earlier in the summer was now perfectly preserved. I flipped to the F's. Faggot. Noun. A bundle of twigs, sticks, or branches bound together. See also homosexual. That was a word I didn't recall hearing. Homosexual. Adjective. Pertaining to, characteristic of,
1: or exhibiting, homosexuality. A homosexual person. It was the next entry. Homosexuality. Noun. Sexual desire for others of one's own sex. Huh. I
0: closed the dictionary. The definition resonated with me in a way I didn't fully understand, and my curiosity was now engaged. From that day on, Anytime my mother would
1: say, I'm going to the bank, I would stop whatever I was doing and go along. I wanted to find out all I could about this Michael person. By eighth grade, my peers and I were well into puberty. Our bodies
0: were maturing at different rates. And the communal shower after gym class had become an exercise in finding somewhere neutral to rest one's gaze, avoiding eye contact, while simultaneously trying to check out each other's changing bodies. Crushes had become more serious, dating had begun, and being called a fag now had the full malicious and sexual context attached to it. I knew I was probably a homosexual, but a war was raging within me between coming to terms with that reality and doing my best to alter it. There was no end to religious, familial, and social pressure to conform and be heterosexual. The message was clear. Gay was not okay. Unfortunately, I had fallen in love with my best friend Bobby. He was everything I felt I wasn't. Popular, funny, comfortable in his skin, athletic, outgoing, and attractive. We spent most Saturday mornings bowling in a league together, and would watch the HBO movie of the week at his house Saturday nights. Being with him was both comforting and agonizing. I never talked about girls. I never engaged in conversations when peers were saying someone was beautiful. I was a husky, uncoordinated, and awkward kid. Inevitably, schoolmates would hurl the word fag at me, and because I now knew there could be some truth to it, that I could indeed be homosexual, it carried a heavier weight, and I felt as if they could see in me all the things I was struggling to extinguish. Even my obligatory poster of Farrah Fawcett I'd hung on my bedroom wall years earlier did nothing to alter the fact that deep inside, I knew I was probably a homosexual. Because it seemed to be expected, I started dating a girl in my grade. There was no emotional context to it other than I liked her as a person and thought she was smart and kind. I went through the motions hoping something would shift for me. We made out a few times. There was a very awkward seven minutes in heaven moment, but there was no spark. Making out with her didn't light me up the way it did my friends when they'd talk about making out with their girlfriends. For me, it was nothing more than two tongues rolling around in each other's mouths, while I wondered, how long do I have to do this before I can stop? My journey toward figuring out my sexual identity was made more confusing by the fact my brother had pimped me out to his friends when I was seven years old in first grade. He was 12 and in sixth grade. This behavior went on until the summer before I entered third grade. I was standing in line for the neighborhood ice cream truck, and a much older kid in his mid-to-late teens approached me and asked if I'd do the same for him and his friends. I don't know what changed for me. I don't know how I found the courage or the strength, but I said no, and I ran into the house. My brother was furious with me. I don't know what he was getting out of it. Perhaps it was cash or some twisted social standing. But given his reaction, he was getting something out of it. After I refused, but before I could tell our parents what he'd been doing, he beat me to them and told them he'd heard I'd been fooling around with a peer of mine. Although what I had done with my peer was age-appropriate developmental behavior, my mother went ballistic on me. My brother stood off to the side and watched. While my mother's wrath rained down upon me, he wore a smug smile of satisfaction on his face. One would imagine a child's parents would have had some questions in that situation. Was our son safe? Should we speak with the other child's parents? Where did this happen? Was our son coerced? How did Carl's brother come to learn this had happened? The spotlight was fully on me, and the shame and embarrassment I brought
1: upon my mother. How could you do this to me? She demanded to know. My father never said a single word. The next day it was as if it had
0: never happened. It was never discussed again. Not by my parents, not by my
1: brother, not even by his friends who'd been involved. I held the abuse I'd endured in complete silence. During the years following that abuse, I suffered horrible depression and thoughts of suicide. I
0: developed nervous tics, I began to put on weight, and I kept moving forward. In eighth grade, when the kids at school called me a fag, it had the added weight of the secret I'd been carrying since I was seven. One Friday night, still in 8th grade, I had a disturbing exchange with my father, and the next morning, as my sister and I watched TV in the basement, my mother called me upstairs. Are you a faggot? Because if you are, we need to get you fixed. No, I said. Our mother had once worked as a nurse in the psych ward of a VA hospital. She never spoke about her time there, and as someone who sought sympathy at every turn, I used to wonder what she had seen that was so horrifying, even she couldn't talk about it and use it to her advantage. This knowledge made me innately terrified as to what getting me fixed might look like. Her question was more accusation and threat than anything else, and reminded me of the night my brother threw me under the bus when I wouldn't let him pimp me out anymore. And just like that evening, all those years ago, the matter was dropped and never discussed again and my suicide ideation returned. The following week at school, I made an appointment to see Mrs. Griffith, one of the middle school's two guidance counselors. I was sleeping less. I wasn't comfortable at home. And I was making a mental list of all of my friends who had said that their parents had guns in the home, as my thoughts of
1: suicide started to turn to a plan. I needed help, and I had nowhere else to turn. The guidance office was across the hall from the
0: main office where the principal, vice-principal, and secretary sat. There was a waiting area and two counseling offices behind insulated metal doors with small windows formed around sheets of chicken wire. Those doors did nothing to instill a sense of comfort in my heart. Mrs. Griffith's office had two posters, one reading, God Doesn't Make Trash, and one of a kitten wedged in the crook of a tree telling the reader to hang
1: in there, kitty. So why are you here today, she began. I don't like it when the other kids call me... Fag. She leaned
0: back in her chair, lit a cigarette, inhaled deeply, and forcefully blew the smoke toward the open window of her office. Well, you're not, are you? She leaned forward, rested her elbow on the edge of her desk, and gave me a penetrating stare. She wasn't so much asking a question as strongly suggesting I not be. No, of course not. I I just don't like it. I averted my eyes. I couldn't simultaneously look someone in the face and lie. I hated lying. Because if you are, that's a conversation better had with your parents and the principal. She paused and continued staring at me as the smoke from her cigarette curled around her head like a snake before being pulled lazily toward the open window. I think she was waiting for me to crack.
1: When I didn't, she abruptly extinguished her cigarette. Kids say all sorts of mean things, she concluded, and sent me back to class.
0: Not long after my visit with the counselor, a peer of mine, Milton, was summoned to the guidance counselor's office via the school's loudspeaker. He and I had similar experiences growing up. We'd been in scouting together. We attended the same schools together. We had abusive fathers, though his went out of his way to publicly shame and tear him down. His experiences showed me things could have been worse for me. It was a shitty way to find solace, evaluating the abuse he endured to feel better about my own. Not long after he'd been summoned to the guidance office, I heard him sobbing and screaming for help. I went to the classroom window and watched as his father dragged him along the ground from the main entrance of the school through the parking lot toward their car. Anyone in the classroom at the front of the building could hear his cries for help. I could hear enough of his screaming to put together the gist of what had happened. He must have had a similar conversation with Mrs. Griffith, only his ended with a more honest declaration of his truth. Milton's disclosure that he was gay went through the school like wildfire, and he was branded an outcast for the rest of his time in school. My heart went out to him, and I was terrified. Between my mother in the kitchen and Milton's experience at school, I kept my concerns about my sexual orientation to myself from that point forward. I made it my mission to try and not be gay. I became the only one of my siblings to go to all the school dances. I invested endless amounts of energy into being someone I wasn't, someone everyone else wanted me to be.
1: And I was miserable, depressed, and constantly flirting with suicide. AIDS was all over the news
0: now and consistently presented in such a way that if you were homosexual, then you were going to die from AIDS. AIDS was covered as if one led inevitably to the other. Being homosexual was a death sentence. AIDS kills fags dead was a common phrase at the time. Before AIDS, the media made me believe that if someone were homosexual, they were also, by default, a pedophile. There were no positive role models at the time. What few characters there were on TV or in movies were extreme stereotypes who ended up ridiculed, vilified, beaten, or killed. One positive thing TV did give me about the homosexual experience was the word gay. Gay was used in a more neutral or accepting way. It may not sound like much, but it showed me a new perspective. Not everyone thought homosexuals were vile.
1: That small nuance gave me something hopeful to hold on to. Milton would go on to commit suicide. My freshman year, my sister was a senior, and for the first time in our lives, we attended the
0: same school simultaneously. That fall, I dated a girl, Diane, who I'd met through marching band. We only went out for a few months, and she eventually broke up with me because I showed no interest in sex. A couple of months after our breakup, we salvaged our friendship. At some point during my freshman year, our mother moved into the guest room adjacent to my sister and my bedrooms. As the school year ended, She sat my sister and I down for a talk. There's no easy way to say this, she said, fighting back tears. But your father and I are getting divorced. We said nothing. She misinterpreted our silence and continued. I know it's upsetting, but I thought it was time to tell you. Given our father's abusive, adulterous behavior, I was not upset. In fact, my initial reaction to the news of their divorce was a sense of hopefulness. I had lived in constant fear and shame, and the idea of being free from him sooner rather than when I left for college was fine by me. My sister, who felt similarly, looked at me, and almost in unison we expressed a relief at the news, saying things like, Thank God, and it's about time. Our mother looked surprised as we continued our feedback, and outlined how he'd beaten all of us, how he made her cry all the time, how exhausting the years of being yelled at had been, How embarrassing it was when neighbors of ours would ask us why our father screamed all the time. And we concluded by pointing out how miserable everyone had been. For years. She ignored our reaction and went on to tell us how he was going to seal the second floor off from the first and convert it into an apartment. The outside door at the bottom of the staircase from the second floor would become the entrance to his part of the house. This news didn't go over as well. She went on to explain that in Maryland... If you had any children under 18, you had to be separated for a year before you could be granted a divorce. My sister had turned 18 a few months earlier, but I was 15 and still a minor. My sister shot me a look that said, so this is your fault. I ignored it. Their plan was to live out their one year separation with our father upstairs, as the three of us lived downstairs. By dividing our single family home into two apartments, he would satisfy the state's requirement for a legal separation. This also allowed them to run out the clock on their marriage in the cheapest way possible. He's going to be living upstairs the whole time? I asked. Yes, she said, and started to cry. My sister and I didn't move as we waited for any other shoes to drop. I hate crying, our mother said. I'm so ugly when I cry. She had said this my whole life, and I always wondered who taught her to think that. Later that day, she finished moving the rest of her things out of their marital bedroom upstairs and into the spare room she'd been using. It turned out they'd already hired attorneys and were fairly far along in their decisions. My father never said a word to me about the divorce, but by then he'd stopped interacting with me almost entirely. When I asked my mother about custody, she told me he didn't want any, not even visitation rights. She also told me she wasn't seeking child support. This news. Delivered with no empathy or regard for my feelings, reinforced my sense of worthlessness. I shouldn't have been surprised. Years earlier, he'd written me out of his will, leaving me only a dollar, so there'd be no confusion. He was an ass, but at that age,
1: I still wanted him to want to try and repair our relationship. But he'd made it clear, legally, that he saw no value in me.
0: Bobby and I were both in the school musical that year. We were in choir together, and our friendship was still going strong. He'd started dating a good friend of mine from band, Claire. One Friday night, Bobby called me. I need a favor, and you're the only one I trust to do it. Okay, I'll be right over. Bring your camera. Okay. And a flash cube. Got it. See you in ten minutes. I got to his house, and no one else was home. He took me downstairs to his rec room. What's up? I asked. I want to do a nude picture and give it to Claire. You want me to take a picture of you naked? Yeah, I think she'll either find it funny or sexy, so I can't lose. I was flooded with emotions and frozen in place. Don't just stand there, he said, taking off his clothes. My mom is going to be home soon, and I want to get this done before I lose my nerve. I still hadn't moved. Get your ass in gear. Hand me that blanket and get the camera ready. I did as directed. He put the blanket over himself, turned away from me, and shimmied out of his briefs. Okay, he said, are you ready? I put the flash cube on my camera and called back, ready. Okay, here goes. He turned around in such a way that he was facing me at a 45 degree angle in silhouette wrapped in the blanket. Standing not four feet away, he threw his arms wide open and revealed himself to me. He stood there, stark naked and beautiful. He had grown chest hair since the last time I had seen him shirtless in a locker room in 8th grade. The same with his pubic and leg hair. He'd also been working out and had clearly defined pecs and quads. He was fully erect and well endowed. I pulled my eyes away from his body and looked at his face. His beautiful face. With his hazel eyes and dark blonde hair, my entire being ached for him. Take a picture, it will last longer, he laughed. There was no doubt in my mind that for him, our friendship was just that, a friendship, knowing I would never be able to be with him in the way I wanted. I said, no, and then told him I needed to go home. We did the spring musical, and the school year came to a close. Our family's summer tradition had always been to spend a week or two at our mother's parents' house. Her father had died the year before, but her mother kept their home Given the impending divorce and my brother's general absence from the family, only our mom, my sister, and I would be going. The Saturday before we left, I spent the day at my part-time job. And when I came home, the doorway off the dining room to the second floor staircase had been sealed. The spackle in the drywall was still wet. There was no advance notice that it would be happening that day. No discussion about it. No explanation for how, or
1: even if, we were allowed to go upstairs anymore. The house, their marriage, and our family were officially divided. My sophomore year of high school, now that my parents and the house were separated,
0: I was able to have a friend spend the night. My father's alcoholism had made that impossible most of my life. My sister was at college, and it was just my mother and me. I invited my friend Tony to sleep over. We'd become friends the year before through drama class and would often spend time together at his house, His mother knew a bit about what was going on with my folks, and regularly encouraged me to come to dinner and spend the night. Tony was on the tennis team and taught me to play, which we did a few times a month. I brought a cot up from the basement so he wouldn't have to sleep on the floor. And after we'd gone to bed, he pushed his cot next to my mattress and asked if we could spoon. Then he began grinding his butt against my groin, which at that age gave me an instant erection. I put my arm over his waist, and he put my hand on his own erection. This was my first consensual physical exploration with another boy, since my brother's abuse had stopped after second grade. I knew Tony, I liked Tony, we were both clearly aroused by the circumstances, and because of my prior experience, I offered to blow him. Everything about the context was different. It didn't feel shameful, but rather a natural extension of our connection. After a time, I stopped and asked if he wanted to return the favor. No, he said. I was crushed. Then my embarrassment and shame arrived. I clearly had not misread anything about that moment and couldn't understand what had just happened. He got out of his cot and pulled it away from my bed. I got up to use the bathroom. Wow, he said you're really getting fat. More embarrassment and shame. The next morning while we were eating breakfast, I said, about last night, and before I could continue, he said, I was drunk. On what? I asked. The only thing we'd drunk the night before was soda. Ignoring my question, he went into the living room to watch morning cartoons and changed the topic. Though we remained friends through high school and would spend many more nights together at his house, That situation never repeated itself, and we never spoke of that night again. The summer before my junior year, my parents' divorce was final, and they sold my childhood home. My mother rented the first-floor apartment of a run-down two-story house. The apartment reeked of cat urine and fuel oil, and the two women who lived upstairs seemed to be turning tricks
1: to pay the bills. My father married his mistress, and the school year began. My junior year, I met Dan. We were in the same grade and had multiple classes together. He was centered, kind, funny, stick-thin,
0: had the cheesiest mustache a teenager could have, his own car, and thought I was hysterical. He was great for my ego. One of our first conversations began before class. I could feel someone staring at me and turned to look. There was Dan, staring at me with a neutral expression on his face. Why are you staring at me? I asked. Uncomfortable by his direct gaze. You're better to look at than the wall, he said flatly. We both laughed, and that was all it took. We quickly became inseparable and would hang out in his finished basement on Friday or Saturday nights. His father would buy us wine coolers as a trade off for knowing where we were. He figured if he didn't, we'd go to some party somewhere and end up drinking and driving. It kept us out of trouble, and at that age, we would have certainly gotten into trouble. My relationship with Dan was unlike any friendship I'd ever had. We just fit, like brothers. Everything about the time we spent together was effortless, and we spent as much time together as we could. We'd hang out at the mall, see movies, go and drive through the county, and day trips on weekends. Our friendship and bond kept growing through our senior year in high school. Just before Christmas, there was a fire in the second-floor apartment. We were displaced and moved in with a friend
1: of my mother's and his family. A few weeks after that, the grocery store where Bobby and I worked exploded. No one was hurt. That spring, my mom bought a new house in a neighborhood adjacent to our old one. That
0: whole school year, I did my best to keep my head down while doing everything in my power not to be seen as gay or potentially gay. I was still going to every dance I could and would ask girls, who were just friends, to come with me. I refused to date any particular girl.
1: I didn't want anyone to be collateral damage to my confusion. The summer between my junior and senior year, now that my father was out of the picture, I began to get more comfortable in my body.
0: I went on a diet and in three months dropped 50 pounds. I took up walking, cycling, and still occasionally played tennis. I started my senior year looking and feeling better than I'd felt since I was very young. As the weather warmed and graduation approached, Dan and I would sometimes drink wine coolers at night as we wandered around a large, undeveloped area of scrub near my house known by the locals as The Ditch. It ran along the highway beside my old and new neighborhood. Occasionally, another friend of ours, who lived in another development within walking distance of mine, would tag along. The three of us stayed out drinking well past my mother's usual bedtime so we could crash at my place after she'd gone to bed. Shit, I said. When I got to the house, the living room light was on, and the front door was locked. The door is locked. I don't have my keys, and I think my mother's awake. The door suddenly flew open. The three of us were standing in a clump opposite the door. I was in the middle, with Dan to my left, and our friend was slightly behind us and to my right. Hello, Mom, I slurred. Are you drunk? She was more incredulous than angry. It was the first time she'd ever seen me drunk. Our friend dropped his wine cooler and it shattered on the walkway. Yep, I said proudly. Despite her best effort to stay angry, she started laughing, caught herself, and tried desperately to swing back to righteous indignation. Well, you're not staying here, you can sleep somewhere else tonight. And she slammed and locked the door. Our friend fell backward onto the front lawn, laughing uncontrollably. Dan and I picked him up from the lawn, propped him between us, and shuffled over to his house to crash. One Friday night a couple weeks later, Just Dan and I repeated the same routine. We were drinking California coolers, walking along a well-worn path at the ditch under a full moon. I love you, Dan. I love you, too. No, I mean... I'm in love with you. He processed this in silence as we walked along the path. Wait, what? How can you be in love with me? You've gone to more dances with girls than I have. I think I may be gay. Gay for me, or gay gay? I don't know. We walked in silence for a bit, passing the last wine cooler back and forth between us. I just want to be with someone I love who loves me too, I said. I do love you, he said, but I'm not gay. We've swapped this wine cooler back and forth so much, I said. We're practically making out right now. He laughed so hard he doubled over and stopped walking. Once he'd gotten himself back under control, he took a drink and passed it back to me. We started walking again. I don't know if I'm gay. I just know I want to be with you. What? How? You are with me. What does that mean? I didn't really have an answer. We walked a bit more in silence. Let me blow you, I said. What? Let me blow you. We passed the wine cooler back and forth between us. Come on, I said. Let me do it. I love you, and I know you've never had a blowjob. Come on, stop asking me that. Why? He stopped walking and turned to face me. Because, if you keep asking me, I may say yes. The moment held. So say yes. He slowly turned away and started walking again. It would change everything in our relationship. I don't want that to happen. I do love you, but it would make things weird. I'd rather have my best friend than a blowjob. I took the wine cooler from him and finished it. Okay then, I said. We walked along in silence, intentionally bumping into
1: each other to lighten the mood, and eventually started back toward my house. We never talked about my offer again. It fell into an unspoken category of asked and answered and never became an uncomfortable presence in our friendship. We simply moved forward. My senior year was unremarkable. On the personal front, I'd kept the
0: weight off. Academically, I realized my grades weren't good enough to get me financial aid to any of the colleges I had hoped to. My only chance of getting a scholarship to a decent four-year college would be by attending the local community college and getting my grades up. I
1: applied and was accepted. After graduation, I worked in the college's computer lab as part of a financial aid agreement. During that
0: summer, Diane, the girl I had dated briefly my freshman year in high school, invited me to meet her at the county fairgrounds for a horse race. The weather was perfect, with clear skies, a gentle breeze, and low humidity. We walked the grounds among the crowd. I have to confess something to you, she said. What? I have an ulterior motive for inviting you here. I want to introduce you to someone. I was immediately annoyed. As I prepared to enter college, I had finally begun to dial back the energy I was investing in being what everyone else wanted me to be. I've noticed you haven't dated anyone since you and I split up, she said, and I think you'll like this person. I was going to mention all the girls I'd taken to the various school dances, but we both knew I hadn't dated any of them. Diane, really, I appreciate it, but you don't have to play matchmaker for me. I'm not really interested in... Oh, over there! I followed her gaze, but no one jumped out at me. Pip, over here, she called out. And from behind a small group of people, a man, a few years older than us, waved. Diane, what are you doing? Trusting a hunch? Pip arrived in front of us. Carl, Pip. Pip, Carl. He offered his hand in a warm, toothy smile. Hi, he said. Diane tells me we have a few things in common. I took his hand and shook it. It was strong, calloused, and when I went to let go, he held my hand just a moment longer than I expected, then released me. I felt myself blush. I'll leave you two to it, Diane said. Carl, find me in the stands when you're ready to go and she melted into the crowd. Judging by his tan, Pip clearly worked outside. He had straight brown hair with golden highlights from the sun. It was parted down the middle with just a bit of a feather on each side. He had brown eyes, a strong nose, and a spade-shaped chin. His direct eye contact was mesmerizing. Although I didn't remember him from high school, he had graduated with my sister when I was a freshman. It's okay. I don't remember you either, he said. I wasn't on campus much my senior year. I did the work release program. We walked around the fairgrounds and made small talk for about 15 minutes when he stopped and faced me. Here's my number. He pulled a slip of paper out of his pocket and offered it to me with his right hand. I reached for it. As I was about to take it from him, he placed his left hand on the back of my right, holding it still in midair, and then gently placed the paper in the palm of my hand. The gesture left him holding my hand in both of his, surrounded by people in broad daylight. I was transfixed, staring at our hands. Then he cleared his throat and I looked him in the eyes. Call me sometime. I work here at the fairgrounds, in the stables. I have access to them, day or night. He paused, still holding my hand in his. I'd be happy to show you around some night. I couldn't move. He smiled, released my hand, and I took a deep breath, not realizing I'd stopped breathing once he'd touched me. And the moment was broken. Good to meet you, Pip. I'll give you a ring. And just as quickly as he'd appeared, he was gone. I called him the next day. I got his answering machine and left my number. After some back and forth, we connected. I don't remember where we'd agreed to meet but it was a beautiful, clear summer night, and after we wrapped up whatever it was we'd meant to do, he asked if I'd like to see the fairgrounds. It's beautiful in the starlight, and there's never anyone around this late. I'd love to show you. I followed him in his yugo for the 30-minute drive to the fairgrounds, and my entire body was tingling. When we arrived at the gate to the grounds, he got out of his car and opened it. We drove through a low-cut field of grass that slowly climbed a small hill which overlooked the track. He was right. It was beautiful.
1: There wasn't a single cloud, just a half-moon, no light pollution, and a sky full of stars. There was a warm breeze,
0: laced with the smell of honeysuckle and horse manure. We leaned on the hood of his car, he lit a cigarette, and we made small talk. It was well past midnight. My body temperature suddenly dropped, and I started shaking. Are you cold? he asked. It wasn't the temperature. It was anticipation. Nervous, I said. About what? You. He stood up. I followed suit. He turned to face me. I did the same. He moved within a few inches of my face. And why would I make you nervous? I could smell his cologne... Paul Sebastian, and his cigarette, Benson and Hedges. Well, and before I could finish the sentence, he placed his strong, calloused right hand on the nape of my neck and gently pulled me toward him. He tilted his head, closed the distance between us, and pressed his mouth to mine. As soon as his tongue entered my mouth, my entire body lit up. Every nerve felt electrified from his kiss, which was the perfect blend of pressure, friction, and investigation. The nicotine on his tongue gave mine a little jolt. His cologne, the distant horses, the honeysuckle, the warm breeze. It could not have been a more perfect first kiss. I didn't move. The moment lasted both forever and only for an instant. He stepped back. My entire body was vibrating. So that's what a kiss is supposed to feel like, I thought. In that moment, I knew I wanted that, more of that, all of that. I got my bearings and said, I should be getting home. Did I do something wrong? He asked and looked concerned. God, no, that was amazing. Well, good for Diane. She wasn't sure, but I knew when I met you, he said. Knew what? That you were gay. I must have gotten a look on my face. Aren't you? I don't know. That's the first time I've ever kissed a guy. And, he asked, smiling. It was more than I expected. I've never felt anything like that with anyone else I've ever kissed. You're an excellent kisser. Thanks. I'd like to do it again if you're interested. Oh, I'm interested. And once again, my entire nervous system lit up, and I was shaking. He pulled back and looked me in the eyes. You okay? Yes. I lied. I was unsteady on my feet. We parted company with the mutual understanding we'd meet again soon. We saw each other
1: several times throughout the summer. Each time, he wanted to have intercourse, and each time I said I wasn't ready. Then one
0: night, at my house, when my mother was out of town, he came over with liquor. I thought it would be fun to get you properly drunk, since you don't have to drive home. Every time I'd look away, my glass would be refilled,
1: and I quickly lost count. I had very little experience with hard liquor. He drank nothing. Once I was drunk, he took from me what I hadn't been willing to give him, and raped me while I pleaded with him to stop. I had no one to tell about what had happened to me. There weren't even legal protections for man-on-man sexual assault at the time
0: the police would have ridiculed me for the homosexual aspect of it. My mother had made it clear years earlier that she wasn't an ally. I didn't tell Diane because I believed she would internalize the incident and unnecessarily carry guilt over having introduced us, and I didn't want to do that to her. I carried my secret in silence and spent the next six months worrying about whether or not he'd given me AIDS. That's how long it took at the time for tests to reliably register the antibodies. I lived in fear, once again hiding who I was as a person. As I started my freshman
1: year of college, I was fully back in the closet, and I did my best to keep my shit together. It took me two years to find myself again. I'd made some solid friendships in college,
0: but never talked about my sexual identity. I let people assume what they wanted, I continued working in the computer lab to augment my financial aid and became close with my fellow lab mates. There were four of us in all. Ginger, who reminded me of a heavier version of Stevie Nicks, always dressed in flowing skirts, with roach-clip feathers in her long brunette hair. Lance, who was stick-thin, rarely wore deodorant, and barely said three words in a day, but when he did speak, he was incredibly funny. And Carrie, who was Pentecostal, with dirty blonde hair down to her hips, and wire-rimmed glasses. We were an awkward and unlikely group, but formed friendships nonetheless. We took classes together, studied together, worked together, and often ate lunch or dinner together. Ginger was second in command at the lab, was 11 years older than me, had her own home, and became like a sister. Most Friday or Saturday nights, some combination of the four of us would hang out at her house, watching TV, eating pizza, and enjoying one another's company. Ginger's mother, Grace, a kind, funny, insightful woman, would occasionally join us as well. Academically, I did quite well at community college. I left high school with barely a C average and was now on track to graduate with honors and my associate degree. I had secured a full scholarship to Towson University, where I was going to major in secondary education, mathematics. First, I had to ace my programming test. The final project was worth 50% of our grade. It was 9 o'clock in the evening on the last day of finals week and time to submit our project. Ginger, Carrie, Lance, and I were in the lab. They had submitted their projects and were impatiently waiting for me to do the same. We have to get out of here, Ginger said. The security guard has been in here twice and wants to lock the building down so he can go home. If you haven't figured it out yet, it's unlikely you will tonight. I can't fail this project. I get that, and you won't, but you need to step away from it. She then called Henry, our professor. He said you have the weekend to turn it in. Well, that doesn't seem fair to everyone else, I said. Call it a perk of working in his lab, being his TA, and getting an A on literally everything you've ever done in this class for two years. I decided I could live with that. OK, everybody, Ginger declared. We're packing it in, and we're going to my house to celebrate the end of the semester and the end of our time together in the computer lab. We were all graduating and moving on with our lives. We left the lab and headed to Ginger's. She had stocked her fridge with soda for Carrie, who didn't drink, and beer for the rest of us. As we waited for the pizzas to be delivered, I continued to obsess over what I was missing that prevented my program from compiling. The pizza arrived, and after a couple of beers and several slices, I had to pee. The bathroom was on the second floor at the top of the staircase off the living room where everyone was hanging out. As I finished, the error with my program revealed itself. I had reversed two lines of code. I figured it out, I shouted. I heard a tired, half-hearted cheer of support from the living room below. As I washed my hands, I looked at myself in the mirror, making eye contact with my reflection. I hated making eye contact with myself in the mirror. The abuse I endured growing up had long ago caused my mind, spirit, and body to disconnect from each other. Each carried different pieces and memories of my history but in isolation. It was an innate subconscious coping mechanism that allowed me to survive my trauma. Making eye contact with myself in a mirror threatened a connection between these segregated parts of myself and always made me uncomfortable. I looked into my blue eyes and in that moment connected briefly with my pain, fear, sorrow, fatigue, loneliness and said to my reflection, I figured it out I'm gay it was the first time I'd said those words aloud as a definitive statement and as soon as the words left my lips I felt the weight of my struggle lift from my spirit and just as quickly I felt a rush of shame and self-loathing although my AIDS test after my rape had come back negative I firmly believed because of the endless messaging from the media and from the pulpit that if I were gay, I would die of AIDS. I also believed from the same sources and my father that if I was gay, I would be a pedophile. And so my first thoughts after saying the words out loud to myself were, I don't want to be a pedophile. I don't want to die from AIDS. I left the bathroom and went downstairs. Lance, Carrie, and Ginger were saying their goodbyes. Carrie called out. "'I'm glad you figured it out.' "'What?' I asked, afraid she'd somehow overheard me coming out to myself in the bathroom mirror. "'The error. I'm glad you figured it out,' she said. "'Oh, thanks.' Ginger and I were alone. "'What was the error? What did you figure out?' "'That I'm gay,' I said and began to sob. Loud, uncontrollable, snot-filled, body-shaking sobs. "'Oh, my.' She said and moved in to hug me. Let it out. It's okay. I had a soul-cleansing release of long-held sorrow and stress. I cried for all the stereotypes I thought I'd have to embrace. I cried from the toll the secret had taken on me. I cried out of fear of what my life would be like. I cried for what Pip had done to me. When I'd finally cried myself out and caught my breath, Ginger took a step back and asked, Are you okay?
1: I feel a bit of everything at the moment, but yeah, I'm okay. I feel... lighter? She went into the kitchen, returned
0: with a glass of water, handed it to me, and we sat on the sofa in silence.
1: After a while, she said, I owe my mom five dollars. Why? She told me the first time she met you she thought you might be gay. Is it
0: that obvious? No, not at all. She's just really good at that for some reason. I felt unsafe that someone had seen in me that which I'd spent so much energy and time trying to hide. For what it's worth, she thinks you're an amazing person and won't care. And neither do I. You're one of the kindest people I know. You're fantastic and don't let anyone, not even you, tell you differently. Okay.
1: What's next? she asked. How do you mean? What are you going to do with this... insight? Nothing. I just needed to
0: say it out loud, and I needed to tell someone I trust. I've been struggling with this since fifth grade. How did this come up in fifth grade? It was the first time anyone called me a fag. I went home, looked it up in the dictionary, and eventually landed on homosexual. I knew then that was probably what I was. I could see curiosity behind her eyes, but she left it at that. I won't tell anyone, not even my mother. This is your story to tell. Thanks.
1: I'm going to head home. I'm beat. Free advice, she asked as I opened the door. I nodded. Be careful who you tell. Once you
0: tell someone something, you have no control over where that information will travel.
1: I drove home, vacillating between fear and relief the whole way. Epilogue I'm fascinated by the reactions of friends of mine who have children if I reference the physical
0: exploration I did in elementary school with peers. Such behaviors begin at a remarkably early age, but it's as if we develop a blind spot around how young we were at the time. Such consensual explorations are normal, age-appropriate behavior. They are not indicators of anyone's future sexual orientation. They are innocent curiosity in how we learn about our bodies. Touch feels good. Contact feels good. Connection with another person feels good. I clearly remember coming home from elementary school one day in fourth grade and having my first I'll-show-you-mine-if-you-show-me-yours experience with a girl in my grade. We were friends, and it was her idea. The whole thing happened alongside a neighbor's house, out of sight, by their trash cans, and lasted less than a minute. Neither of us was particularly impressed, and we continued home, never to discuss it again. That is not to make light of what my brother did. The boys my brother pimped me out to left me feeling soiled and used. Those exchanges were about power
1: and control. I don't understand how I survived it, other than I had some innate coping mechanism. It wasn't fortitude.
0: It wasn't character. It was, at best, innate resilience and luck. I included the story of my experiences at the direction of my brother because they were a core aspect of my coming-out journey. They made everything so much more difficult, so much more confusing. They polluted my understanding of my sexuality with tremendous guilt and shame. For years, I thought they were the reason I was gay but I eventually learned that is not how one's sexual orientation is determined. It took me years of therapy as an adult to pick apart and separate the emotional aspect of the two sets of experiences, my consensual curiosity, from the abusive adulteration. I have met many men of all orientations who have had similar experiences at a young age at the hands of family members or trusted people in their lives. Though they are capable of acknowledging it happened, many are too often incapable of discussing it or seeking therapy, which has left them carrying deep shame for something that happened to them at an age they had no ability to stop it from happening. At least one in six men are survivors of sexual abuse, and there are precious few voices able to share their experiences because it is painful and re-traumatizing to do so. I'm proud of the work I've done that allows me to be someone who can share his experience and the hope it may help someone else with theirs. It is for them that I chose not to redact this experience from this story. Silence does not lead to progress.
1: In first grade, we only know what we know. It isn't until we gain experience or are exposed to the ideas and
0: experiences of others that we can measure our lives against a different standard. I suppose it is why so many people are hell bent on controlling what books, and by extension, what ideas, children can access. God forbid a child, trapped in some horrible situation, brainwashed by their parents, or church, or
1: local culture, reads of an alternative state of existence and realizes something could be better with their own. Milton gets far less room in this story than he deserves. We weren't friends but his life
0: was an endless tangent to mine all through school. His father was just like mine, but with less self-control in public. I think about him all the time and wish he'd found a better fate. I hope in the end he at least found peace.
1: What happened to him as a child all those years ago is still happening to kids today. Bobby. I loved that kid with all my heart. We had so much fun together just being around one another.
0: We worked together at two different places in our lives, a Hardee's and the grocery store that blew up when we were in high school. Claire eventually came out as a lesbian. The evening I made a pass at Dan, I'd never received a kinder, more thoughtful rebuke. My pass never came between our friendship, which is what being secure in one's masculinity and sexual orientation looks like.
1: He was flattered, curious, But it wasn't what he wanted from my friendship, and we simply moved on from there. There's much more to my rape, but this isn't that story. I almost didn't include the
0: fact of it, as I know it is upsetting. But as with my brother's behavior,
1: to exclude it would be to deny another core part of my coming out experience. Meeting Pip, having my first kiss under the stars with my nose filled with a honeysuckle cigarette smoke and his cologne. It was beautiful, and I refused to let his ultimate rape take the beauty of that moment for me, which took a lot of therapy. Although some will tell you differently, we never fully recover from trauma.
0: It's an unrealistic expectation to place on oneself or on others that you can. The best we can do is make the most of the trauma and do the work to own it rather than have it own us. The journey is the thing, and the questions are sometimes more helpful than the answers. Then there's Ginger and her mom, Grace. Ginger was literally a lifesaver to me. There is so much more to her story that made her willing and able to be there for me in the ways she was. She was kind, insightful, and generous. But more than anything else, she was present Sometimes all someone needs of us is for us to be present for them, to see them, to hear them, to validate them, to reassure them. Be an ally. Be someone's just the right person at just the right time. Be the buoy in the water of someone's life.